gonemobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Welcome back to Gone Mobile. In this episode, we're joined by John Daniel Trask, founder and CEO of Raygun, and whom you also may remember from way back in episode four of Gone Mobile. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks very much, guys. It's a pleasure to be back. You make me feel old when you say way back, but uh... (laughs) (laughs) way back about a year and a half ago. So (laughs) can't have done too bad to be invited back. Yeah. So I mean, like we were talking about, you know, you've obviously been up to a whole lot of stuff in the the year and a half, or almost two years or so since that uh, last episode. So we kind of wanted to to catch up, see what's going on over at Raygun, um, and I think the best place to start is with uh, some of the latest stuff you've been doing around Raygun Pulse. So can you kind of give uh, an elevator pitch on what that is? Yeah, sure. So. It's not quite elevator size, but uh, when we last spoke, Raygun was a crash reporting product. Uh, Raygun's now sort of emerging more as a, a platform for engineering teams, technical teams. And so late last year, we re-released a real user monitoring product called Pulse. Um, and we put it out there. It supports the, the web. And then, of course, people said, hey, look, we love this product. Where's my mobile story? And it was like, oh, that's a, that's a great... In fact, I think, Greg, you might have been one of those people. But uh, I'm sure I was. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like, well, it was on the roadmap, but obviously it's now been uh, six months or so since we released uh, Pulse for the, the web story. And now we've put out the beta for uh, Pulse, Pulse for Mobile, which you know everybody listening is going to be a software engineer and, and appreciate that our thinking was just, let's not delay releasing for six months. Let's just stage the platform. Uh, but everybody knows that we... We sort of have very strong multi-platform story, so it was definitely coming. Um, so really excited to have that out. We're still really excited around what um, Pulse for the Web's doing um, and getting that feedback from customers. Crash reporting continues to do really, really well for us as well. So what made you decide to expand into this space, the user monitoring space? And can you talk a little bit more about what exactly Pulse does? Yeah, sure. So what we get is we get loads and loads of feedback from our, our customers. We we try really hard to get as much feedback as we can. There's a feedback link right in the sidebar of the app. Um, we have feature request site and we basically get a continual flow of requests for complementary products. So we had crash reporting and people said, you know, it'd be really great with the crash reporting, you know, if I could see how the users were using the system or, hey, look, it's really good if uh, there's no crashes, but what if, say, and especially in the, say, the web sense, the web sites you know slow as hell that's not a great experience either so people started to think a lot more about the overall quality story um, and so we we thought that was a valid point and so we had this whole range of different things we could look at trying to develop uh, we ultimately went with uh, real user monitoring because we're strong believers in um, measuring the performance to real users not synthetic testing uh, we also saw that Particularly, one of the drivers behind the multi-platform story is that in the mobile world, as you're aware, you kind of don't get much um, in the way of what you can track uh, with your end users. Because you know, if something goes wrong with crash reporting, you can't connect to their phone and just say, hey, I just want to have a look at the logs on there. Um, and so the next thing was, well, how are people out in the field experiencing your mobile apps, your websites, and measuring the timings for that? And where is the timing going? Um, so... That was the the driver. It's the start of a performance story for us. Um, And and what it does is it effectively, um, I like to explain it in 
aeronautical terms, crash reporting is like your black box flight recorder. You know, when something blows up, you want to capture what happened. Um, and Pulse, real user monitoring, is more like a continual feed of diagnostic information. So it might not be something that you necessarily need to go and look at, you know, right away like constantly. I mean, it's absolutely there's some great data porn in there, but you don't need to look at it con constantly. Um, but you want to know when things are trending in certain ways. And so that's that's what we've, we've got in there. We've got the ability to see how your users are experiencing your apps. So you mentioned the term synthetic testing there. I mean, can you speak for, for anyone who might not be familiar with some of these um, like kind of industry terms around user monitoring and analytics? And can you kind of speak to the differences between synthetic and real user monitoring? Yeah, absolutely. So synthetic testing is where you uh, usually have, a, I'll, I'll use the web as a good example because you can't really easily synthetically test a mobile app, but um, other than an, an emulator. But in the web story, you'd normally get a bunch of uh, servers and various data centers all over the world that will ping your site, say, once a minute, once every five minutes, and measure the response time and how long, say, the SSL handshake and all that took. And that's really good for doing uptime checking, which is important. Um, and that was sort of you know a fairly popular piece of the op stack maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, but the problem with that is that you're not actually uh, measuring the performance to how your end users are seeing things. So the reason for calling it real user monitoring is because you're tracking the timings and data from actual users. So, for example, uh, if you go and look at the Raygun site right now, you would have all of the timing data for how long that SSL handshake took, the DNS resolution, the time to fetch page, how much time on the server was spent from you. And the reason that that's a really important distinction is, one, we build software for humans. It's really important that the actual people have a great experience. Uh, and secondly, more and more these days, um, a synthetic test is really testing data center to data center. You you're often talking about fiber lines. Maybe they're not overly congested. It's a high-quality network. Um, and this becomes especially important when you start thinking about mobile and kind of crappy network connectivity, slower connections, all of that sort of stuff. So what we do is we actually collect up all of those timings from all of the actual users, bring them all together, give you the timing distributions and all of that sort of good stuff to help you understand your performance story. Great. And then can you, can, before we kind of dig into a lot of the specifics around this, I mean, can you just speak to like what platforms you kind of currently support with Pulse? Yeah. So with Pulse, uh, we obviously do the web story. That's a JavaScript framework. Uh, Pulse for mobile at the moment, we have uh, native iOS and Android, and we also support uh, Xamarin iOS and Xamarin Android right now. We have some requests as well for the um, for some Windows Phone support and also the new unified Windows platform sort of story, uh, but but neither of them are in there at the moment. The Pulse for mobile part is presently beta, probably be out of beta in about a month's time. So the part about the crash reporting that I really liked always with Raygun is that the Xamarin support was managed code, or there was at least some managed code component there. Um, are you doing something similar for Pulse, or are you writing bindings to the native libraries? How, how do you go about implementing that? So what we did with, just going back to the crash reporting, when we very first built the Xamarin crash reporting component, it was all managed. And the 
challenge with that is that we could get a certain level of crashes, which was good. But once you sort of went too far down the stack, you lost out on the crashes that would sort of happen below the level that Xamarin was operating. Uh, so what we ended up doing is we actually wrapped a native crash reporter and the and the managed crash reporter together to try and get as much as we possibly could. Um, so similarly, what we what we do now is we've effectively got the one SDK for crash reporting and, and Pulse together. So you've still got that same stack where we can hook in for anything where it makes sense to be managed and in the unmanaged part. So we've got a blend in there. If we can light up the data uh, for our Xamarin customers by operating in the managed space on top of the, the unmanaged, if you will, uh, we do that. Um, at the moment, there's not too much delta in there, though. Um, but if you know, appreciate any feedback from our beta users about Xamarin-specific things I think we could pull out. So for things like performance um, tracking, which I think you do a little bit of a, a component of, does that mean that you're taking like a blend of the sort of native stack and the Xamarin stack together for that information? So with the performance story at the moment, um, on the web, we have a really, really strong story. With the performance story on mobile, what we're looking at more is um, doing the third-party call-out. So we want to be measuring API calls, the actual device timings, to be honest, on such on a well, I'm so used to calling mobile devices resource constrained, and it's fast kind of going away that that's really true. Um, but we don't time uh, much in terms of like say how long code's taking to execute per se. It's uh, more important about those other calls that are going on. How long do things take uh, when they're touching other systems? Um, so that's usually more our our uh, performance story going forward on mobile. I'm not actually sure that piece is in the beta right now, but it's uh, certainly coming. Um, what we tend to do more in there is time the interactions on the various views so you can understand the flow of the users, how they're engaging with the app. Um, so what we've done with, with the overall story with, with RUM, both web and mobile, is we collect the perform performance data that we can without jeopardizing the performance itself. And then secondly, we want to actually get sort of a form of analytics about how people um, are engaging with your software. So if you put out a new version, for example, we want to say, did the average session length change? Or, hey, we changed the flow here. Did we see a whole lot of people start navigating through here or dropping off at that point? So we've got a ton of data in there um, and, and different ways to visualize that to help our developers uh, build better software. Cool. And yeah, I definitely want to start digging into a lot of those, you know, the different metrics and stuff that you can track is to me, that's where as a data junkie, that's where, where I start to go crazy. Um, but, but one quick thing on the, the last subject kind of before we move on. Um, so if I heard you correctly, you mentioned that the, the, the pulse stuff was just added into the existing Raygun SDK. Was that right? Yeah, we want to try and have the single SDK where you can flag on, um, the features. So it's the same with the, uh, uh, web real user monitoring where you can enable crash reporting or disable it you can enable or disable the the real user monitoring um, we see that we we've still cut the code base fairly small actually in terms of the xamarin sdk that's actually kind of on the the slightly larger side but that's because it's wrapping that native and managed crash reporting capability but uh, it hasn't added much over here to support the um, the pulse for mobile story Right. So then that would mean that it's actually part of, because uh, 
the the client SDKs that you have are totally open source too. So now that would include the the pulse bits as well. Yeah, that's the that's the plan. I don't know if the current um, mobile parts are, have been open sourced yet while we're in beta, because um, I know that uh, Jason, who leads the Pulse for Mobile thing, we've been managing the um, the beta bits as sort of standalone. Download this file, put it in, give it a whirl. Um, but that's certainly the plan as we as we tend towards um, making it a general availability. Right. Yeah. That and for people like me that are just paranoid slash security conscious to put it a nicer way um, that, that that's one thing that i actually really liked about the raygun crash reporting is that you can just kind of go in there and answer any questions that you might have over what it's doing behind the scenes yeah absolutely and similarly um with the crash reporting is the for those of you who are unaware when you look at a crash report we give you this nice pretty grouped page and that's fine but there's this raw tab in there which is the json blob and we actually put that in originally because um we were unsure that we were actually pretty printing all the fields. We were like, oh, we better make sure we didn't screw this up. So it was it was there on day one when we when we released the product to our first beta users. And then we went to look at taking it away. And of course, everybody kind of freaked out because it turns out it's actually really helpful for people to feel assured that, oh, this is all they're collecting. This is actually the, the raw data. I don't have to worry that there's, oh, well, look, there's my credit card details and passwords and <laughs> things in there. So we've always tried to be as transparent as we possibly can. Now, the APIs for Xamarin um, have to ask, because everyone seems to be going more and more to the forms route and the PCL route. Uh, are the APIs PCL compatible? Is it a unified API between the platforms? We have a unified provider in there for Pulse for Mobile already. Um, I know that around Xamarin Forms, there's some some work being done at the moment. I think we're a little bit behind on that in the in the beta at the moment, but the the PCL story is certainly coming along. Awesome. So let's let's dig into the good stuff. Let's dig into to what you actually get once you you put Pulse into your app. So like like without having, if I was a developer and I went and added. Uh, pulse to my application, um, or actually, maybe that's a better place to start. Like, if say, let's say, I already have the Raygun SDK in my app, what do I need to do to actually light up Pulse? So today, you'd have to go and get the beta bits from the the post. But um, let's assume, because this this podcast will live on beyond beyond the beta period. Um, in that case, uh, what you'd do is you just make sure you're updated to the latest version of the Raygun SDK. And then we typically have uh, two events. Usually it's something along the lines of attach crash reporting and there'll be an attach pulse and you can enable those. And so just making those calls will enable it. Very similar to um, what we do with crash reporting where the setup time is frequently not that long, five minutes, a couple minutes. Um, usually our biggest challenge is convincing people that it won't take that long. Uh, when we look at our, our funnels for conversion, it's like, oh, you stopped there. It really, you only needed a few more minutes and you would have been done. Um, so that's going to be the approach to getting started with it. And that's that's the basics all done there. Cool. So then once you have that set up, you know, I've initialized Pulse, I've set all that stuff up, I've went through those three to five minutes of, uh, you know, difficult, arduous, you know, adding an API key to my to my application. Um, like, what do you actually get out of the box without having to do any extra work? Uh, so by default, what we look at doing is we pick up as much information as we can. So uh, usually that's quite good in mobile versus, say, 
JavaScript land. So things like version information, so we can show you the version adoption over time. We do anonymous user tracking. So by that, we set up a effectively a GUID or UUID, um, and we can track against that. So we can understand the set the users coming back and how many returning users, that sort of stand, standard analytics story. We do also provide the ability to identify users if you'd like. So this varies from company to company uh, on whether they are comfortable sharing that. As a heads up, we have a good privacy policy. We don't do anything with the data, but obviously that's up to, to our customers on what they want to do. But with that, you could actually attach some extra metadata. So if users are authenticated, you can attach an email address or a name and then you can actually drill in and you can look through the sessions for the various users if you want. So you could actually go in. I could say, hey, Greg's got a, an issue with my software um, and he's contacted us and I want to go and have a look. And I can look at his account and I can go through and I can see that he's had, say, six sessions. And I can look at the last session and I can look at the various views that have come in um, that he's been looking at and kind of go, oh, I'm understanding the path that he's taking here. I can see where there might have been an issue Again, trying to better enable our customers to better understand how their users are using things. Um, we also, and I, I won't just run through like bullet point every single feature here, but um, some of the things that we've found quite useful is that if you do use uh, Pulse for mobile and you're using crash reporting, because we're a proper platform where the data at the back end for us is unified, we can start telling you the quality by version of your different deployments. So if you put out version two, we can say, hey, you had this many um, crash-free users, here's how many users were impacted by crashes, break that down. So really useful for understanding that code quality going out the door, um, which I think is really important for knowing at, at a sort of a dev team level, are we trending in the right direction? Um, and then I guess my, my last free uh, or sort of thing that I really like is just doing that engagement tracking, how many new users, how many returning users, how many are crash-free, that sort of thing broken down by day. Right, yeah, I think the the really powerful part of the story, at least to me, is being able to combine your your analytic side and your real user monitoring side with the, the error um, information that you're getting back. Because if you're using different services, then these are in disparate systems and you have to start tying them together manually. But being able to see a real tracking of this user started their session, they did X, Y, and Z, then they hit a crash. That's that's pretty powerful. Absolutely. And it's um, it's one of the things that, again, taking, I'm obviously biased, but take, take off that and kind of go back to my engineering hat. And um, what I've seen out in the market is a lot of sort of those disparate offerings and they build something and it's cool and then you spend all your time trying to stitch the things together and it's, you know, for all of our love of talking about how our APIs are great and, and make things easy, they're actually a pain in the butt to have to keep stitching things together and keep them up to date. Um, so that's why we've architected our platform to make sure it's a single data source. If you've got all the data, we can pull it all out. Almost our biggest challenge these days is um, picking and choosing what we visualize. So we can cross everything over and you know, draw all sorts of uh, sort of meaning from the numbers, and everybody has a different thing they want to see. But uh, yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's actually an area that that I was definitely curious of. Like, how do you on your end start making these decisions of which kinds of metrics are important to look at? Um, and as I started doing this in a lot of my own stuff, I you know it quickly became apparent that even though you know 
this sort of thing has been well established in the the website for years, but kind of at the app world is a is a pretty different beast where you have some amount of like say Venn diagram overlap with the obvious types of things you might look for on the web, but there's a lot of other things that you want to pay attention to in native apps. So how did you guys approach um, your your thinking around that? Uh, well, what we typically do is we engage. Um, pretty strongly with a select handful of customers. So we have a, our director of product here. She interviews customers all the time. And so we've got a full persona research done. Then we want to make sure that we understand what each of those personas would be looking for inside of any new product. Um, but I always think it's it's important to sort of think about not being entirely customer driven. Uh, so what we what we usually think is somewhere between sixty and eighty percent based on what the customers are asking for, and then twenty to forty percent um, for us is what do we just think would be really cool that maybe the the customers aren't thinking about yet. So one of the challenges we often have is that across those personas is that we see. Raygun being um, bought into a company through the engineering team, typically, um, but then it rapidly gets adopted by other team members. So team lead normally approves that they're going to put Raygun in and they sort of look at things at a higher level and then um, we even get the case where we get, uh, say, marketing wants to understand the engagement metrics. I've touched on support saying, hey, when when users contact us, it'd be good to understand where they were and what was going wrong. Um, And so we actually run into that as the big challenges. There's there's a good number of personas in there. We don't want to let them down, but we've got to focus on, first and foremost, that engineering team. So what does the story look like behind <clears throat> authentication and viewing data within Raygun? So you mentioned, you know, different departments maybe wanting different access to, to data. Can you set that up like on a team level in your app or how does that work? So we the, the way that we structure um, data in Raygun is that we work on the notion of, of having an app. And an app is really just a logical container to whatever it means to our customers. Um, so... For example, if you're a small shop, um, you might say, um, hey, our mobile app, both on iOS and Android, screw it, it's one app to us. We don't get enough data. So we're going to feed from both both endpoints in there, and that's fine. Um, through to really large customers who might have um, so many people working on the app that they'll say, you know what, there's a payment section in our app, and that's an entirely different team. So they might split it where they, that's a separate logical app to them and manage it that way. So we don't really insist upon anything around how you structure that. Uh, secondly, though, there is the ability to set up teams in Raygun, um, so you can manage that. That's more around the, the roles and the app visibility. So if you are, a, say, a services company that does a lot of mobile development, you might go and set up Raygun and then add all of your customers' apps in there and then use the team management to uh, manage the visibility of those apps to the given customers. And that's a great way of reassuring the customer that you actually care about the quality of the software. Um, but also, it's a, it's a good way of maintaining that relationship with the customer to sort of keep uh, a communication line open with them. So you can do that as well. We don't charge on um, user seats. We charge on data volume. Uh, basically, so with that in mind, you know you could add a thousand users to your account. It's not going to balloon how much you spend with us. Um, really, our costs are driven by how much data we have to process. So you talked about like different, um, you know, different sort of sections in an app. Does that does that mean you can use different? You could, I could specify like multiple API keys and in multiple instances of your SDK in the same app. 
you can do that, but it is a sort of a global reporter. Um, so you have to be a little bit wary of that. We have run into that one time with a customer where they were using shared libraries around the place. And so they would inadvertently overwrite an API key um, and sort of go, oh, why is it flowing into this app? And, you know, break it down with them. It's super rare. I mean, we've got tens of thousands of apps reporting in uh, at any one point and it very rarely comes up but you can do that where you just say hey we're entering this area almost like you know sim four structure we're entering here apply this one when we leave go back to this one that that's not uncommon um, in the web world it's obviously a lot easier because you're sort of working on that um that page request cycle. So in the JavaScript reporter, you just say, hey, maybe our, our master page or our template just uses this um, from here out. Going beyond, I mean, you mentioned kind of being out of the box, being able to check out things like screen hits and flow through an app and session length and um, user operating system versions and that kind of thing. Um, like, are you, does Pulse offer anything kind of beyond that? Like if I wanted to send through, say, custom events that are meaningful within the scope of my application or something like that, is that supported? It's not supported today, but it's a super requested feature. So custom events and also the ability to um, sort of even tag sessions so for example if you're running an a b test and you want to say hey i'd like to break out these um, and see how they compare so custom events are coming the way that we've structured and this sort of goes behind the scenes but the way the data is actually structured now is the ability to create a custom event is already supported in the back end it's just really building out those views and ways for people to manage things and Hopefully you'd, you'd agree with this as a user of Raygun, but um, we tend to go a little slower sometimes than we than we probably have to because we try to make sure we think about the user experience quite quite heavily. Um, I think that does set us apart on a bunch of different tools out there is to try and say, you know what, just because we can technically do something, maybe we shouldn't make it hella confusing for everybody or a feature they really struggle with and then they end up, you know, pissed off at us and that's not a good outcome for anybody. So, Right, yeah, you actually stole the one of my other questions right out of my head with the your tagging comment there. As I know, I go, we use tagging pretty heavily at work to, to be able to differentiate all sorts of different things. So that, that's one of the first places that, that my head kind of goes when it comes to really anything in an app. Yeah, and we, well, it, it's interesting you mentioned that because we are looking at the moment at making some improvements to the accessibility around tags because people are using them as a super frequent filtering option. And mm -hmm. so at the moment, it's like, well, if I click and bring up a dialogue and, you know, okay, that's an extensible place for us to add more filters. But actually, if 90% if of the engagement is with tags, why don't we make that a little bit easier to get at? So. Right. And it becomes, I mean, now we're just getting into, you know, personal wish lists of mine, which are a bit of a tangent. But I know, like, for me, if you start tagging things, like, if you start tagging different versions of an error within a group, even with different tags, it'd be useful to be able to start visualizing what percentage of that error group has a certain tag. And yep. like, it, it ends up being pretty powerful metadata on top of just the... The, the the error itself really yeah or the the event itself or whatever it might be absolutely so those sort of aggregate datas and reporting are becoming super um super interesting to a lot of people now they've got the data and fortunately the way that we manage the data ingestion um is that we do we do store everything so a lot of various services out there they'll generate you say a really nice time series chart but they're sort of equally blitzing a whole lot of the data once they've recorded 
that you know these were the x and y coordinates um so we we actually did this massive project behind the scenes last year where we completely re-engineered our data storage just due to the volumes we were dealing with and the and that does mean that we can go back through and pull out the aggregates on on anything we'd like um so we are looking at, at doing some building some pretty cool features around that one thing that's about to come out i think i again this engineer to engineer i think i saw the pull request in slack <laughs> yesterday going through uh, <laughs> is that um you know, understanding the percentage. So we've put the affected users now on the dashboard. So you can see in an error case, hey, there was a there was a thousand errors here and there was a thousand errors here. But if one of those only affected one user and the other one affected 500 users having two crashes each, well, I know which one I need to fix. Um, but secondly, we're now adding an additional thing where it's like, what percentage of my users had this this crash? What percentage breakdown? Um of our errors are, are affecting users here to try and help people better prioritize. This episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun offers leading error and crash reporting to over 30,000 developers around the globe and now offers real user monitoring for both web and mobile apps. Raygun's native mobile support brings deep analytics about how users are engaging with your mobile apps. Raygun platform customers can discover problems affecting their end users automatically, giving developer teams unique insights into the performance of their apps. Raygun offers a free 30-day trial, so get started at raygun.com today and make sure to thank them for sponsoring Gone Mobile. Right, and then kind of piggybacking on um, my custom events sort of question from before, and, and also kind of going back to something that you mentioned earlier when you were speaking through the the, um, the, the website of, of real user monitoring, where it becomes super important to know the the duration of network requests as it as it's experienced by the user and not how it's experienced by necessarily your server, right? Like the 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 way that I try to describe this to people and like when I started getting really really heavily into analyzing our own apps it the the real question I wanted to understand was how long I'm making users sit and stare at things like spinners or wait for something to come back and we had a really good idea of what our server side response time is because we have all sorts of profiling tools running and things like new relics so like I and pingdom and we know exactly how long our servers take to respond but then when it comes to your apps, you have to add in a 3G or a 4G network, which could be like half a second of latency on top of whatever your server's doing. So your performance budget kind of goes through the window. Um, so anyway, that was that was kind of a long lead in into wondering if you if that's something that's on your radar for for adding support for, be it network requests or base any like arbitrary timing metrics and that kind of thing. Yeah. So network requests is effectively that that third party calls. Now the third party could still just be your back end server, um, but that is certainly uh, something we we want to get in there. I think that is almost the key performance metric these days. Um, it's unfortunate as to say, like measuring the timings on the devices for just doing things in the app, like kind of like what New Relic does, but at the mobile app level. If they've got a modern modern phone. Performance is probably fantastic anyway, and if they have a really old phone, well, that's a great way to sort of really rub some salt in the wound of somebody who's got a poor-performing <laughs> device to then slow it down to tell you it was poor-performing. Um, but yeah, so it's those calls out, and, and you're, you're bang on. I mean, the way that I sometimes think about it when I talk to people around those latencies is, you know, we... We, like a lot of people, ultimately moved our build servers you know, into the cloud. We used to just have them in our office because you know, they were close, latency was good, and of course, 
the the downside of that was deployments took forever you know to actually go from the office up to the the, the cloud operators um, and so you moved it closer and that's the problem with synthetic testing is that you're kind of saying yeah there's every chance you're actually testing inside a data center <laughs> it's, it's not not a good measure so it sounds like you're storing quite a bit of information sending quite a bit of it back up to the server can you talk a little bit about how you minimize the impact that has you know both in like uh, network bandwidth overhead of getting that data back and also memory footprint, you know, CPU footprint in the app itself. Yeah, so the volume of data, when I talk about the the large amount, um, it's usually more or just around the sheer popularity now of the platform. Uh, so we, we're dealing with billions of requests, you know, all the time, uh, every day. But in terms of the client, so we, we always make sure that we are uh, rolling up data if possible. We also will store things in uh, sort of a local storage, isolated storage, whatever it is for the platform you're on, and then um, batch that, send it up later. We also obviously in the mobile sense have to be fully aware that connectivity might not be available. So that's another reason for parking data until we can send it. There's also under the crash reporting scenario, the um, the side effect of certain errors, particularly on iOS, if they happen low enough, the app's gone. You know, it's like we, we're not going to get much time other than to to dump the data. And there are still a couple of classes of errors on iOS that you just won't catch, capture. You cannot capture them. Um, so we tend to try and be as sort of low impact as we possibly can, um, to, especially around that network story. Uh, we, we do bring the data right down. We send them, a, we use our protocol buffers to make sure we bring down the actual size of what's going out um, for some of the, the crash-related data um, rather than sending just huge JSON blobs for everything. Um, there's all sorts of things like that that go on to try and try and minimize the impact. I haven't to this day, actually had a single customer ever contact us about them having a, a problem around the impact of using these SDKs, um, which is a positive sign, but we certainly keep it front of mind. How often do you guys try to flush data back from the device to the your servers? Uh, we, we typically will do things in several scenarios. So when the app starts up, we'll we'll usually hook up for a, an asynchronous send at that point, if possible. Now, the reason for that will be because, for example, if we had a crash uh, and we stored the data, and we're now getting the chance to send it because we don't want to. If we even if we could send crash data when it's wiping out the whole app, you don't want to then have the app crash and then give the user a spinner. Uh, while you wait to send off the crash report, right? So those things, but they're always we're always working to make sure that they do not uh, try and block the actual load of the app. They'll they'll sort of background thread in there, and then we typically, in the terms of pulse, sort of look at the thirty second um, related ping. But we do store the uh, the data as we go, like say, so that if the user was to have say a sub thirty second engagement, you know, stop there, send it later when the app starts. Um, but that's, that's there are other events like that we need to store, like when somebody tombstones or backgrounds the app, things like that that have to go on that won't necessarily mean that it gets sent right away, but parked for a future send operation. 
You mentioned um, like over the last year or so, making some kind of architectural changes on the, you know, on your backends in order to have this unified story between crash reporting and, and analytics coming in. Um, and I have to imagine that as you start to roll pulse out to more and more customers, that it really is just a lot more data coming in. So I'd be curious if there's anything you could speak to around like how you guys kind of architected yourself to be able to scale to that without having to hopefully without having to really worry too much about it. Well, yeah, we always worry, but we, we, uh, you might, I might have mentioned it in our call 18 months ago, but we had a real challenge um, in the earlier days with um, being almost victims of our own success where feature development slowed quite dramatically while we had to uh, fight the, the scaling fires. Um, that's less of an issue these days. We've resolved a lot of that. Um, we use a mixture of different data sources, uh, data stores. So we've got some. Postgres and there's some MySQL and some Elasticsearch. Um, there's also Redis in there, and, and those those areas are, are not really overly tapped out. A lot of it's come down to how we, um, what data structures we use internally, and then also looking at that custom storage system that I mentioned, which is sort of the ability to store all of the raw data in a very performant manner. Um, so that. That took us the better part of a year to build that. It has some similarities to what the um, Hadoop file system has in terms of how it aggregates data for storage to minimize um, things there. And it, it also means that we're not um, cloud provider um, locked in, if you will. So it can back off various different blob storages and it has several layers of caching in there um, at various stages for hot data and, and whatnot. Um, so at the moment, by the way, so we're, we're entirely on AWS at present, but um, it's not like we're using you know any of their um, funky different data stores for that stuff. Um, but yeah, so that's I know it doesn't kind of go into too much specifics about how those different things interact, but that's the sort of uh, the, the soup behind the scenes, if you will. Yeah. How long is the data generally kept for? Um, so it varies depending on the product. Crash reporting, we provide a standard six months data retention. Um, we, with Pulse, we store the full volume of data for th for thirty days, and then we start looking back at the um, at aggregating the data past that. We do, however, provide customizations around all of that depending on um, customer needs. So a lot of enterprise customers will usually want um, more time than that. Um, sometimes they'll actually want dramatically less. Um, so that we can configure that on a per per customer basis really easily. Nice. So even um, as kind of a follow up to that, and also even the earlier conversation of you know how you have all these different departments that might want to slice and dice all this data and in all these different ways. Um, I'm curious if you know you mentioned trying to be pretty careful around how you actually expose the data and what kind of visualizations and um, and that sort of thing that you want to expose through the dashboards. Um, but I was wondering if there are any plans to offer any data export type option where you'd be able to take raw data and you know do really anything that you want with it. Uh, yep, I can. I could log in right now and enable that beta feature for you right now, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> so that was actually one of the drivers behind that um, storage engine upgrade last year was that we, if you were storing things in just standard database, right? One, it's been already transformed and and we pull out key values that we care about. But obviously, people want access to the raw data, and so being able to pull um, all of their data was really important, and to be able to do that relatively quickly. Uh, still, generally, it'll happen as a um, 
as an offline process because of the volume. So it's super common for us to get requests where people say, hey, can you just give me an export CSV option, please? And it's like, well, you have 60 gigabytes of crash data in here, or you know, I'm probably not going to put that in a CSV for you. And it, in fairness, it's just because people don't sort of sit down and think, oh, yeah, I've sent you X millions of errors in there. Um, but uh, so we, we are providing the ability to create an export job that will then notify you probably within only a minute or two that'll give you a a compressed file that contains all of the raw JSON data so that you can feed it into Redshift or write your own tools over it, do whatever you'd like. Um, at the end of the day, the data is our customer's data. We're just in the fortuitous position that they um, will let us hold onto it to provide some visualization on it. Um, so that's that's our answer to that. The, the thing with thinking about the visualizations, it's not so much that we need to be careful in terms of sensitivity of the data it's more just that we could create 500 different charts and that would be kind of crappy <laughs> yeah absolutely but that, that's awesome that you're um kind of looking towards enabling that that export option um and you know i could also relate to to the concern over you know uh you know requests for immediate exports of, of large things like few things have the ability to take down a system really really quickly than trying to do real-time reporting on large data sets <laughs> yeah it's it we we also have a an api for enterprise customers and um yeah part part of the reason that that's in there for um enterprises because just about everybody just writes you know for each app for each era group for each instance <laughs> do this and then run that on a loop once an hour and you're like uh-huh okay what could go wrong <laughs> <laughs> absolutely are there any plans for sort of going in the other direction and adding any kind of webhook um, support to to this sort of data? So we do have uh, webhook support now, um, and that's currently around the crash notifications. We are bringing in the um, integration story. So for those of you who don't use Raygun, um, we integrate with about 20, 25 different products like Jira and GitHub and Slack and all of those things. Um, so we're going to be making the ones that make sense uh, available in terms of all of the Pulse story um, in there. Now, one of those integrations is webhooks, and so we'll, we'll add those in there. Generally, creating new webhooks um, based on what people want to report on is is relatively straightforward. Um, so, yeah, we are looking at that. What's the pricing like? Can you go through some of the different plans for Pulse? Yeah, so Pulse uh, starts at effectively $99 a month, um, and it goes up from there. It's based on the number of sessions. Um, so I'll just bring it up here. So I think it's 100,000 sessions at the moment that we, we've we got a sort of a launch pricing in there. Yeah, so per, uh, $100 per 100,000 sessions. And that does mean that we are recording all of the all of those steps through the UI, all of that flow information. Again, so it's quite a lot of a lot of data that's in there. So if I go over my session limit, do you just like cap the data, or do you do you tell me, hey, I can't, you can't be doing this anymore. You have to upgrade. Uh, so what we used to do is we wouldn't cap the data at all. Uh, we would just let it sort of ro roll through, and then we'd get in touch with people. Um, and uh, to be honest. Um, what we found is about 99% of people just like to ignore the whole, hey, so you're over. So what we then do is we then put a cap in 
um, if they decide they don't want to engage with that. We do actually have an option where you can choose, hey, just like auto-upgrade me if it need be or choose to deliberately cap me, like choose choose your options there. Um, but yeah, when we when we, we do let people go over by default, you know, the first time, then we try and get in touch. If they then don't want to engage, then we look at those things, um, which is a shame because we're trying to be nice by letting people generally kind of <laughs> approach that in the first place. But yeah. <laughs> And when you mention uh, capping an account there, is that the same sort of approach that you took your, um, at least my understanding is that you're taking on the, the Raygun error error reporting side where you would start trimming from the beginning of time? Yeah, so we, we ended up changing away from that because we would get people who would legitimately need to be on probably an enterprise tier, you know, say I think we had somebody that was sending 3 million errors every sort of 10 minutes and that'd be on a small plan. And it's like, well, hang on a second. Like we're having to receive this data, then delete it like 30 seconds later to make space for the, <laughs> for the rest. Um, this is not really, and of course, it'd be like, no, but we're happy with that. It's like, you, cool. <laughs> you might be happy with that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if it's using up several EC2 instances just to handle you and we're billing you $49, um, that's probably not going to work at our end. <laughs> um, so we did end up changing that up. But like I say, we're, we're, we've had to be a little bit more, um, uh, I guess, strongly enforcing the rules of the platform. But we are fellow developers and human beings. Like I say, we try to get customers engaging with us as much as possible. So when people have a, oh, something just blew up this one time, can I, you know, we'll engage there. Very similar, I guess. I always like to draw the comparison to like a cloud hosting provider. Um, You know, if you make a mistake with AWS, like I had a a friend where they, um, they were playing around with AWS for the first time and they inadvertently provisioned this colossal database, RDS instance across multiple AZs. And they didn't actually use it. They didn't even know that they kind of had it, you know. And then a month later, they get this bill for thousands and thousands of dollars. And of course, they got in touch with Amazon, said, "Oh goodness, I'm, you know, we 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 knew to this, didn't know what we were doing, you know." And they sort of go, "Oh yeah, look, we'll sort that out. Like, don't worry about that." Um, that's how I like to think everybody should sort of behave. Um, but hey, if you said, hey, so I put this database server in here and I thrashed the crap out of it for, <laughs> for months, now I'd just really like to not pay the bill. Uh, that's, a, that's a different, different that's story. That's a bit different, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, the beauty of uh, the whole DevOps thing, right? Like a bad for loop can cost you a lot of money. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and that's the, that is one of the challenges with um, the the error side of the story. The plus side is though, you know, is if somebody says, oh, look, we want to try and reduce our our, um, our expense on some of these tools with us, and it's fairly unique, if you just fix some bugs, <laughs> you know, it's like your customers, you know, sometimes I'm like, you're concerned maybe about $100. Are you not concerned about the 200,000 crashes affecting your customers? Like, it might be costing you more than more than these two hundred dollars. Um, we do also just obviously a lot of the listeners won't have used Raygun, but just to be clear, there are a bunch of features in the product to try and help manage that too. So, for example, if you're thinking of mobile and you're like, "Well, I released a buggy version. What am I going to do about that?" Well, you can actually mark it as resolved in a future version, and we'll drop the data that comes in on the old version, so it's not counting towards usage. You can permanently ignore errors. So this is not so much a big deal on um, mobile, but it's pretty big on the web. Is you know, 
hey, I don't want we, – we ran a pen test and it's we know it, hmm. it, it hits these URLs. I'm not going to fix those. You know, permanently ignore, don't count towards quota. Um, all of those sorts of tools are built in there for helping manage and, and mitigate the risks of, of large um, volumes of data. We also have a um, filtering capability about ship where you can say, like, again, in the web story, I don't care about my 404s, I don't care about these robots, I don't care about this host, just – don't don't bring that in. So, yeah, oh, that sounds beautiful. <laughs> Music to my ears. <laughs> yeah. So so what's next for Pulse? Like what's kind of coming down the the roadmap that you that you could talk about? Maybe that we haven't covered yet, or or did we kind of cover everything? No. Well, I think we sort of um, talked a little around the roadmap with the measuring the performance timing on the web requests. Uh, we are also we do geographic data too. Like where are the users uh, hitting things from? And at the moment, we do that at the country level. So we have uh, city and state level information um, coming sh- shortly, so people can drill in on that more. We've touched on the ability to do tagging or splitting of things. We've talked about custom events; they're all coming. I like to always think in terms of our products and the standard. V1, V2, V3. So everybody used to say, you know, you don't get a Microsoft product when it's until it's V3. And the truth of the matter is, as an industry, you don't really want to use anybody's product <laughs> until it's V3. <laughs> V1 was your best guess. V2 is your first round of like, these are the things we cut out, uh, which we think are really important, plus some really low-hanging fruit on customer demands. And then V3 is always like, okay, we've now, we've now polished this up a bunch. It's now a really good product. Um, I think, Crash reporting for us is absolutely, you know, well past a V3 product. Um, I think Pulse is approaching the the V3 status now. It's been sort of six months out there. We did need to provide a mobile story as well as a, a web story, um, and we'll keep working pretty hard on on that Pulse roadmap. Um, for the foreseeable future. We have spun up teams internally as well to work on each product, so it's not like we sort of uh, time slice between the products. There is there is ownership inside inside the company on each one, so they keep moving forward. Awesome. Well, I think that this is a, a fantastic kind of jumpstart to hopefully encourage people to, to check out Raygun, check out Pulse, um, you know, and you know, speaking obviously, I don't I don't get paid by Raygun, so I could say if you're not using Pulse, you should at least be using something to monitor this stuff. Like this is super super important stuff to to actually have some insight into what's going on inside your applications. You know, be it rolling your own or using a service by built by someone who knows what they're doing. Um, at a certain point, you probably don't want to be rolling your own for for this sort of thing, but but it, it's super super critical to to pay attention to to all this stuff so i really appreciate you coming on to to chat about this oh it's, it's always a pleasure uh, i appreciate having the opportunity awesome and thanks everyone for listening again and we'll see you next time on gone mobile 